Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. Companies have rapidly embraced the idea of a truly distributed global workforce and opportunities to work from anywhere are now very common. But access to great training and education remains unevenly distributed. So while digital nomads and people living in developed economies are able to benefit from this new reality, many people from emerging economies lack similar opportunities. Microverse is trying to change that. Ariel Camus is the founder and CEO of Microverse, a Y Combinator alum that has raised over $17 million to create an online school that helps anyone become a software developer. And through the use of their novel income share agreement revenue model, students don't pay a cent until they're employed in a meaningful programming job. In this episode, we talk about the origins of Microverse, the nuances of ISA-based business models, how Ariel sees globally distributed teams working in the coming years, and much, much more. It's a great conversation. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And with that, let's go to Ariel. All right, Ariel, thank you so much uh, for doing this. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've been pretty interested in this kind of genre of rethinking education for a while. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Why don't we start with, I guess, the origin of Microverse? I know this, this isn't your first time around building something. So what was it that, that uh, piqued your interest about this space and what led to the creation of Microverse? Absolutely. And thank you for having me here, Sean. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So in, in a big way, Microverse is part of the story of my life. And I guess the, the origin story we can say it began after the acquisition of my previous startup that got acquired by, by Lonely Planet, the travel guides brand. I took one month to travel to a different place, like looking for a purpose for what I wanted to be doing next in my life. Mm-hmm. And I spent that month in Burundi, in East Africa. I spent that month teaching in the University of Computer Science. And I got to see the most extreme version of everything, like the most extreme version of accessing opportunities because I was living in San Francisco before that where you had access to like so many amazing jobs and amazing salaries. Yeah. I had just yeah. sold my company for millions of dollars just because the acquirer wanted to acquire a bunch of software engineers, which it's, it's wild. I had seen all tech companies going nuts to find great talent and paying up source salaries and poaching talent from each other. And there I was with all these people that I was teaching to who were perfectly capable of doing all those jobs and were completely disconnected, right? Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking a lot about my own life as, as an individual and as an immigrant. I got to Europe when I was 12 years old because of my parents and decided to emigrate out of Latin America. I was born in Argentina. There was a big financial crisis in 2001 and my parents decided that for me and my sisters to have better opportunities, it wasn't going to be there. And everything I've had access to in my life, it's probably because of that change and because of the sacrifices that my parents made. And yeah. I'll be forever grateful for that. It was not easy at all for them. But it, it got me thinking in Burundi that it's it just wild that the place where you were born is what determined your opportunities in life, where you have so many companies desperate for talent so much talent, desperate for opportunities, and so many massive challenges that we have to fix as humanity. We have climate change right now. We have space exploration, curing cancer. I mean, you name it. And the more we evolve as society, the bigger the challenges become and the more that they will require every talented human being joining the global economy to solve this as one species instead of like fighting uh, each other. So I went back to San Francisco thinking, how do we solve this? But 
I've I've been a nerd since I was little. I was coding at the age of 12 and I've been coding since then. And I'm also an engineer by training. So I was thinking, how do we solve this in a systematic, scalable way? And I knew it started with education. I knew a lot of these people were at a disadvantage when it came to preparing themselves technically. But I knew that wasn't wasn't going to be enough because I had had a lot of friends going to really good universities in Latin America, coming out like much more stronger than in many other places in the developed world, let's say. And I knew that wasn't enough. So I went back to San Francisco and I had a realization moment when I met the founder of GitLab. Back then, they were 150 employees, more than 2,000 today, public company since last year. And I got to see the growth from like 150 to where they are today. Sid, the founder, became a mentor in my life. And they have this amazing handbook that you can find in their website if you search for like GitLab uh, Team Handbook, where they have 12,000 pages of documentation on how they run GitLab with every single team member working remotely. They are the first company that is going public where every single team member is remotely and where they are hiring everywhere in the world. And I was mind blown by the kind of culture they were building, the kind of business they were building, and how they made it work. Because by talking to Sid, getting to know the team, reading the handbook, I realized that they had to reinvent the way people learn in order to make this model work. But on the, the upside was that they were benefiting from not having to compete for local talent just in the Bay Area or in London and, and the, the bigger like uh, tech hubs. They got to have a track map for diversity. They were paying less money than what their competitors were spending by hiring only locally. But at the same time, they were paying way higher salaries than what people in other countries would have made locally. So it was such a massive win-win. And I realized like, this is it. This was 2014. Now it's more evident to say it, but I realized remote work was going to become the bridge between talent and opportunities. But I realized by reading the team handbook of GitLab that there were a lot of new skills that people needed to learn in order for remote work to work. And I think we have all experienced these new skills by this forced transition during the pandemic. But, you know, the holy grail of asynchronous work, right? It it doesn't come natural to us. How do you document things obsessively? How do you collaborate with people who are in very different time zones, who speak with very different accents, very different cultural backgrounds? That means they... Multicultural collaboration, it's it's a massive topic. It's a really complicated one. So if we really wanted to solve this issue of opportunities and talent being disconnected, not only we're going to have to come up with a learning model that could teach technical skills at a world-class level in every corner of the planet, but also with the skills to train people for the future of work, for this distributed workforce. And the solution came with this idea of peer-to-peer learning. There were, there were like 40 years of successful research, but failed execution, definitely failed like scaling of peer-to-peer learning. Mm-hmm. When instead of having one teacher being the one that is orchestrating the whole thing and sharing all the knowledge, you have students where they're learning from and with each other all the time. And it was really hard to scale because where you only have to worry about the consistency of a teacher in a traditional model. In this case, you have to worry about the consistency of all the peers. So it's way more complex. In a peer-to-peer environment, the quality of the experience is determined by the quality of the peers. 
Yeah. How do you make that delivery a consistent experience that delivers consistent outcomes? And what enabled that to work today is technology, and I can talk about that. But the beautiful thing about this model is that it allowed us to scale education in ways that you can't with traditional you know, education and teachers, while yeah. still like lowering the cost and while also creating the perfect environment where people can learn not just to code, but also how to work in a remote distributed environment with people from all around the world, where a traditional student in an American college will spend some time here and there with some project, with some students. Here you have eight hours a day of multicultural collaboration where yeah. your progress depends on the other students making progress with you in a collaborative way. So you have to overcome the technical, like the challenges of working multiculturally, or you're not going to be able to make progress. And peer-to-peer learning is the secret sauce of how we do things at Microsoft. Interesting. I got I, so many directions we could go. I, I'd love to... <clears throat> I'd love to start, I guess, with the the early days. One of the things that a lot of startups run into when they're trying to do stuff like this is this idea of like network compression and how do you build how do you build a marketplace? I mean, this sounds like it's a it's a it's a little bit unique in the sense of a marketplace because the, the teachers can also be the learners theoretically. So that that's an advantage. But how did you start? Did you focus on a particular discipline or even like a particular language? Like how did you how did you in the early days? get the necessary supply kind of on the on the teacher side to make sure that the learners were learning what they needed how did you deal with that stuff in the early days just because it's a big that, problem that, i know a lot of a lot of startups deal with no and that, that's a terrific question and by going to burundi and going through this i made sure that i was trying to build a company for the right reasons not money not working with a specific co-founder, which was the case of the previous startup, but a company where I could see myself really having fun and making a positive change in the world for the long term. Yeah. But before I was like 100% sure of that, I decided to move out of San Francisco. And like most entrepreneurs who want to move into San Francisco to start a company, I decided to move out to a place where I had basically infinite runway. Mm-hmm. I moved to Vietnam with my wife and we lived uh, between Vietnam and Indonesia for a year. Wow. I mean, it was an amazing year, but most importantly, I had zero financial pressure. I was bootstrapping that year, making sure that I was not in a rush to raise capital and all the strings attached to come with that. I really wanted this to be the company that I could see myself running for the next like 30, 40 years of my life. So what I did first was I just got two students and just one program focused on end-to-end full-stack web development. It was in high demand. I knew it well. And I became, I guess, the the peer zero, right? I was there, of course. I was also doing marketing and admissions and career coaching. I knew the market, so I could do that. And I was the initial person like holding these first two students accountable. But I made sure that the first two students already had a component of multiculturality. I had one student from Kenya, one from Serbia. And it was as simple as saying, hey, here is the curriculum that I put together for you. You are going to join, I think it was a video, a Google Hangout, some kind of like the one that you could record. They have changed since then. You're going to be there for eight hours a day. Take breaks where you need it. I'm going to be recording you. You're going to be live streaming. So I know if you're working or not. Uh, that's the accountability. And like there is this Finnish saying that says that shared share sorrows are half the sorrow and shared joys are twice the joy. So that's what this is about. 
And in the process, you're going to uncover some of the difficulties of collaboration. And I'm going to be here to mentor you when that happens. And so they went. It was very rudimentary. I even feel like ashamed today, thinking, oh my gosh, that was so much worse than what we can offer today. But that's how you start, right? You focus on your core hypothesis, which is, is education about content or is it about accountability? Mm. Can you give accountability just with teachers in a physical classroom, or you can give strong levels of accountability in a more scalable way, still driven by by humans uh, behind it? Mm-hmm. And it worked really well. So in the yeah. second month, I got four new students because I wanted to, to test the kind of scalability assumption. So yeah. can I get the first two students to do my job of mentoring these new four students? And then you got eight new students. I got the second group of four students to mentor the new eight people. And mm-hmm. I kept running that small group of 12 students for around yeah. nine months to a year while I was in Asia. And I started seeing it running without me having to do anything at all. Wow. They all made it to the end, got jobs. The guy from Kenya is working for Microsoft today. And like we had a lot of great stories. And I was like, okay, this is it. It's super fun in the short term. It's super hard to crack, which means, well, I'm going to have fun, but also it can become yeah. a moat if I can crack it. And yeah. I can see the impact that it has in the short term, but also I can see it scaling in the long term and having like really making a dent in the world. And yeah. that's what I did for a year. Once I saw it working, well, I realized, okay, it's time to scale it. And I raised some capital, went back to San Francisco, went through Wild Combinator and all the typical things. But yeah, it's hyper-focusing on one thing and starting with the smallest version, uh, the typically you know, MVP of what will allow you to validate the most important but the least amount of hypothesis possible. But even nowadays, we only have one program that is full-time, just focused on full-stack web development after three mm-hmm. years because we spent three years just making sure that we were optimizing for cracking this peer-to-peer model, not for scaling prematurely on launching many programs. Uh, We are now starting to talk about launching new programs as a way to grow even more, but it's focus, focus, focus all the time. As a founder who'd already exited and as a founder who seemed like he had figured out the delivery of this this offering, maybe not quote product market fit necessarily because you're still trying to validate it at at a larger scale. What was the calculus for going back to San Francisco and doing Y Combinator? What what were you hoping to get out of that experience? And then to what degree did it it accomplish that goal for you? I know everybody is always curious, like the Y Combinator experience is a little bit of a black box for them. What was that decision-making process like? And then what did you get out of it? So I had applied seven times before to YC, before I got into YC. Wow. And sometimes, no matter how much I would love for microverse to make a dent in the world for the long term, I make decisions based on what I can count on today. And Mm -hmm. that's just the one student that will make will get a job in the next hour and will put a smile, you know, in his or her face or in his mom's face is not the millions of students that we expect to get in the next like eight years. Mm -hmm. YC, it wasn't to make sure the company was the most successful and the biggest possible company was like being an entrepreneur. It's also a career and a career that you have to enjoy in the present moment. And for me, it was just an experience for the sake of an experience, at least 
I knew that I could count on that. And whatever wow. came on top of that, that was terrific. A lot came on top of that. So, but the, the amazing thing is by the time we got into YC, like six months more or less after I came back from Asia, yeah. we were 10 people, 12 in the team. And I knew that YC was experienced very reserved to the founders. So unlike most companies, I flew over the other 11 team members from all around the world. And we lived together in two houses in San Jose in California for like the entire summer while we were going through YC. And wow. it is a life experience that no one who was part of that will ever forget. And it's not a professional experience. It was a life experience. So as an entrepreneur, being able to extend my philosophy for how to live a joyful life so that other people who are part of my journey, who are you know, insane enough to join this really hard, ambitious mission, making sure that every day we make it count. So YC was that kind of experience because we made it that type of experience by living together, by using it as a bonding, as a life experience, we made mm -hmm. it count. But of course, I mean, the they say that the days at YC will define the maximum velocity at which your startup will ever move. And I can say it's true. Even earlier today, we were talking about how do we replicate some of that velocity today? It's hard, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. the formula is quite simple, to be honest. It's, there, it's just a bunch of very simple questions that we often forget to ask ourselves. Like, do someone really want this, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is, are you talking to your customers, right? It's, it's, it's very yeah. simple stuff that they repeat over and over and over to you, but they do it every week in an environment where you're surrounded by people who are also very ambitious and very smart. Mm -hmm. And every week you're pushing each other. It's a peer-to-peer -peer environment. It's the same thing. And there's just something that today it's a partner, but it could be also software that is moderating these dynamics. And it scales really well because the more peers you have, the better it works because the more likely you're going to find people who are like you in the same vertical or in the same kind of stage. And they just push you really, 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 really hard. And yeah. because that works well, and because it's simple, it's also replicable and scalable, because it drives really good results and you have a lot of interest from investors. So by the time we completed YC that summer, even before Demo Day, we already had offers for like $2 million in venture capital. Our goal was to raise two. And two days after Demo Day, we had received interest for like $9 million. We ended up having to say no to a lot of investors. We had investors during Demo Day, like coming around me, surrounding me saying, hey, Ariel, can I invest in you? You don't know me. I don't need a meeting with you. Just take the check now because I want to be part of this. Like yeah. that ha had never happened to me before. I don't think it will ever happen to me before unless I go through YC. That by itself made it super easy to raise um, a seed round. It yeah. definitely helped later on open a lot of doors. The sure. YC community, it's amazing. The, it gives you access to a lot of smart people, really ambitious, who have been everywhere and done everything. It yeah. is a, a network built on trust that it's really hard to maintain and they work really hard on that. And I had moments like, like Paul Ram, the founder of YC, who is no longer actively engaged on a day-to-day. -day, and I got an email, hey, PG is going to be meeting with a few startups in the batch and you're one of them if you want. I'm like, oh yeah. I mean, I was actually sad that I wasn't going to meet PG. And I showed up and I started talking about some of the competitors and he had invested in one of the competitors. He said, are you, are you telling me, Ariel, that they're wasting their time and their money by having teachers and live lectures that you can get the same without teachers? I'm like, yes, PG, that's what, I, what I'm showing you here. It's like, that is amazing. The people need to know this. 
And the world needs microism. Microism needs you as its founder. Can I invest in your company? Yeah. That money and the fight that Paul Graham invested in the company won't make any difference in the long-term destiny of the company. But going through that moment as an entrepreneur, having read his essays for years, to me, yeah. you know, it still gives me goosebumps today. And it's such yeah, it a really cool experience. Yeah, that's awesome. I'd be curious to learn how you, I guess, what were, what were some of the lessons that you learned as your, um, I guess, either in the early days or now around two things. One, you mentioned that the multicultural aspect of this is super important to you philosophically and otherwise. And you obviously, you've lived all over the world. So you had, I guess, an understanding of how to navigate all of that. But like, I'd be curious about what some of the lessons you've learned about smashing a bunch of people together from all over the world that have different expectations, different ways of operating in the world and like how you learned to maybe proactively help them navigate that. And then secondly, the teacher, like the, the, how do you, how do you create a system where you don't have any staff and you're relying on peers to deliver a, to your point, like you said earlier, a consistent experience. Like that's a fascinating idea. Like how do you deliver a consistent experience with a bunch of random people effectively? And yeah, I don't know. It's just fascinating. I'd be curious about like those two, those two seem critical to the success of this thing. So I'd be curious what they you are. about that work yeah perfect let's talk about multicultural collaboration and then how do you drive consistency in a peer-to-peer and multicultural yeah. environment so yeah. there is this framework for remote work to work that i i'm mostly borrowing from GitLab, where we start with autonomy in a remote environment people in different time zones if you're waiting for other people to give you the information you need to do your, do your job like it's too slow so you need autonomy to have autonomy you need to have trust and to build trust, you need transparency. And it happens to me that I am a, I'm an open book in my life and I, I am at work the way I am in the rest of my life. So I am an open book. So transparency fits my view of who I am and how I want to work very well. So to me, the idea of transparency, of course, an example of that is documentation, but it goes beyond that. It's also that you can talk about your feelings and you can come to work as a whole person and have a much more like integral approach to working with others. And that vulnerability, that openness then builds better relationships that help you build trust that helps like build uh, or create all this autonomy. So Mm -hmm. in some way, defining those or bringing those values into the company as a founder helped us a lot because in an environment where naturally confusion, misunderstandings will happen because of the, multi-time zone, multicultural uh, nature, having that openness to say, hey, this doesn't make sense, or hey, this, I have no clue how you're making that decision or why you're communicating this way. Like having that openness helps a lot. But on top of that, you still need somehow some some type of framework to deal with multicultural issues. And if I were to recommend just one thing, and I should be getting commissions at this point, it is the book, The Culture Map. Hmm. The writer, the author, Erin Mayer, she also co-wrote the book uh, No Rules Rules with the founder of Netflix. And she's an expert on multicultural collaboration. Her job is like coaching companies into this topic. And the book is very short. And by the time you re- you finish reading it in a day, you realize, like, holy cow, I just got superpowers. I don't know how to use them yet. It's going to take me a life, but I got superpowers. And 
She yeah. talks about different dimensions of multicultural cooperation, like the being more low context or higher context as as a culture, being providing more direct or indirect negative feedback, being more flexible, more strict with time, being more emotional as emotion. It's always a spectrum, and she like maps different cultures and countries in this spectrum, and it helps you see that. Because one country, one, one culture is on, let's say, the left side of the spectrum in one dimension, doesn't mean that they're going to be in the left side on all the dimensions. And it presents a map that is messy and it's beautiful. But once you're aware of how messy it is and you realize that behind all of this, there's just like humans that we just happen to have agreed on approaching things differently. Once you know that it's not bad intentions, it helps you always assume the best from people and then always approach it with curiosity. And that's yeah. a framework that we have used to creating ways of addressing conflicts and communicating effectively internally as a company. And the same thing with students. So for example, we have agreed that there is no right or wrong way when it comes to low context or high context communication. So more explicit or more implicit communication, like most Asian cultures, for example, are much more higher context. So you have to read between the lines. Like I think Chinese will say, you have to read the, the, the meaning in the air, whereas uh, a Dutch, right? Or even an, an American person is much, much more direct, right? So, yeah. uh, or like, uh, like much more direct, but also a lower context. So we made an agreement as a company that in a remote environment, we can't afford to be high context because we're going to have to be asking clarifying questions all the time. So we have to be incredibly explicit. And it's not because it's worse or better, it's just that in a remote environment, that's our agreement. And we map when people come into the company, we map their way of thinking and their cultures against the way of the values of the company. And that gives us a, a way to start conversations. Hey, you happen yeah. to be much higher context, which means you might have difficulties with this and this and that. You have to train this. We're doing the same things with students. So think about the speed at which things are training, are changing in the world today, in the world of technology and work. There are new programming yeah. languages and technologies and problems like being surfaced all the time. And people are expected to continue learning for the rest of their lives. And they're not going to have teachers for the rest of their lives. What they're going to have is peers, bosses, managers, people that know less than them and they have core reviews and project reviews and brainstormings and all types of these environments where like you're learning all the time without a teacher. And we thought, why is a teacher the only way of learning? In the past, it made sense. You had a person whose job was to transfer knowledge to you. And they also did other things like making sure that everybody was quiet so that people could be concentrated and absorb that knowledge, making sure that people were showing up on time. But today, the issue we have is not lack of access to information, it's abundance of information. So that is no longer a problem. The problem was that we're still depending on teachers to drive all this accountability, all this focus. But all of that, you can do it with a combination of technology and peers. In this case, for example, we have, let's say, an integration with the Zoom API where we know if you're joining your calls, if you're joining on time, if you're actively participating, if you have internet connection issues, based on all of that, we can deliver corrective feedback. Based on the feedback, if you don't improve after a week, we rearrange, reshuffle automatically all the learning groups to make sure that all the people who are at the highest level of commitment will remain engaged in the school. We, right. When we did this in a yes, less automated way, our NPS was... 60, 65. Now we are constantly every week at 85 and we can consistently get people from the beginning of the program until the end where yeah. right now around 70% of the people are completing the program in an environment yeah. without teachers, right? And 
the alternatives are either very expensive models where you have teachers driving all of this or and not scalable, or you have uh, like video courses, MOOCs, where the completion rate is like a 6%. So we have deliver the level of scalability that traditionally you'll only get from like recorded videos and software with a model that is still very human where they're learning the skills. And then 90% of the people are employed in jobs within six months and the average salary increases to 300% after that. So like it is working really well. Yeah, really, really interesting. What have you found in terms of organizations that are wanting to leverage, they buy into this idea of kind of a distributed workforce or I guess specifically a globally distributed workforce. Like it's one thing if you're Netflix in terms of kind of some of the overhead or potential like regulatory, like legal stuff. If if, I'm assuming these are FTEs, like instead of a contracting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like if you're a startup, you're more early stage or just you're more revenue constrained or resource constrained. What have you found are some of the challenges in deciding to go quote unquote global and how should companies think about trying to overcome some of those challenges? Are they, are there, are there tools, are there services that they can leverage that make, for example, something as simple as like handling payroll across borders and stuff like that. Like walk through maybe some of, some of the learnings that you've had there uh, for organizations that want to embrace this idea. Absolutely. So the first thing is there are probably two reasons to want to go all remote and globally remote. The first one is you are not able to attract or retain talent locally. You're competing with other you know, massive companies and that's the case of most startups in like developed hubs. And you wanna open up your talent pool uh, by you know, 100X by going to other places. The second reason is you wanna bring more diversity. You believe that diversity drives, drives innovation, that it drives growth. So you are conscious about it and intentional about it from day one. Of course, as a startup, you're much more likely to be able to do this change from day one than as a much more established company that has much more higher risks by making such a big cultural change. So I normally look at companies in different kind of tiers in their approach of remote work. You have, we are, let's say, in New York City, and we are open to hiring people who are still in the city, but, you know, they can work remote. Then you have, okay, we don't care if they're in the city or not, but they have to be in the country. Then it's, okay, we don't care if they're in the same same country, but we want them at least in the same time zone, right? And then you have, I mean, I don't care where they are. I don't care the time zone. Of course, the higher you go in these tiers, the more people you get access to, the bigger the talent pool, the more the diversity. Mm -hmm. Also, the more the complexity, the better the tools that you need and and, and so on. So the first thing is you need some of the best practices for remote work, even if your people are in the same city in the same state. And I'm talking about great, writing great documentation, giving people much more autonomy, having the right you know, tools for video conferencing, paying people to have good hardware at home and good chairs and so on. Then you need people, if you're gonna be hiring internationally, you need to deal with compliance and payroll. And the good news is that because remote work is here to stay, you have companies like Deal, like Remote, who have raised like, I think a billion dollars uh, together so far in less than three years, they're solving this issue. And at the beginning, if you're just having a bunch of people in each country, you can pay them as contractors, you can treat them as full-time employees, but pay them as contractors. As the number of people in a certain country starts going up, of course, that is not compliant. You have to like start hiring these people. You can go to Deal, you can go to Remote. It's quite affordable, one click. 
And in 15 minutes, those people are actually employees, but these mm-hmm. companies take care of all the payments, of all the compliance, all the tax withholding, and yeah. you're just interacting with the U.S. company, and it, it is, it's a no-brainer to work with them. Yeah. Right. What about culture stuff? So, so deliberately crafting your organization's culture. I know a lot of organizations have run in that are, that are, that are maybe distributed. They were forced to be distributed to your point because of COVID. That was one of the bigger challenges for them was like, how do I make people like on the one hand, there's a quality of life improvement for a lot of people um, in terms of like not having to make a commute and all that kind of thing. But on the other hand, I know a lot of folks were lamenting that they felt disconnected from their team and how do I do you know, company-wide events and make them feel as close as possible to what it felt like to be in the office and hanging out with people or going out and grabbing drinks or whatever it is. It seems like that would obviously be magnified in a global setting for many reasons, the time zone difference, like you said, the cultural difference, like all that kind of stuff. So like, what have you seen in terms of good practices in deliberately crafting a culture for a globally distributed organization? So I I think one mistake we keep making is trying to find ways of replicating the office environment in a remote environment. It's not the same. It's not going to be the same. It's going to be different. And it has pros and cons. Same with diversity, same with multiple time zones. So instead of trying to get the same, but in a different environment, try to identify the strengths of the new environment. And if all the other reasons make you want to consider remote, then leverage what's unique and what's different than remote. If you are remote and going global, you're going to have more diversity. Take advantage of that diversity to integrate into the values, into the culture, into the rituals of the company, for example. So like, but trying to replicate the same thing is not going to work. Now we're humans and human connections are an important part of life, of making the present moment count, of um, building strong teams. So you still have to build those connections. We do have I'm about to leave in five days to our annual team retreat in Florence in Italy. I have all the teams meet like twice a year. So the product organization will meet twice a year, the marketing organization. We have a lot of events. Like last Friday, we were doing one of our favorite activities. We've done it four times so far. It's a meme creation activity. It's very Mm -hmm. therapeutical because everybody will laugh about everything that is wrong, everything that is hard, right? All the hard decisions we had to make last year. And you get to do this. It's much easier to do it in a remote environment than in an in-person environment because memes are done with digital tools and it's pretty awkward to have 50 people in the same room, all everybody in a computer. And when you have everybody yeah. remote, it's just the natural way to do it. So there, there yeah. are a lot of ways of building these connections. And I meet new team members in person for the first time and I'm like, I don't remember if I've met you in person or not before because it feels like I have. Like it, yeah. it, it, it's truly about finding the, the, the ways of, of getting it, but, but it definitely uh, works. Have you found any differences in terms of how you operate in the world as a leader and especially like a leader of a scaling organization that's globally distributed? I know like, one, like folks say the job of the CEO, cast the vision and reinforce the vision, raise money, hire amazing people are basically like, you basically, know, yeah. The three, the th- yeah. Have there been any differences, I guess, maybe between your first go around and now trying to d- very deliberately create something that is global in nature and is distributed? Any, any nuances there? Uh, yeah. And that be real helpful? Absolutely. Because like the capital side, it doesn't change. Sure. The setting the vision and like building the culture of the organization are definitely not different, but you have to be a little more intentional about it. And it goes down to autonomy. It goes down again to transparency and trust. Mm -hmm. Normally in any environment, 
being clear when you're setting the vision, it's important. In a remote mm-hmm. environment, it means that you have to repeat things more often. You have to err on the side of over-communicating. It means that things have to be documented. It means that doing like strategic planning through OKRs, for example, is even more important because they drive autonomy, because they drive alignment, because they drive transparency. So like yeah. the great thing about remote work is not that it requires new things. It's just that it yeah. forces you to have to do to have to follow the best practices that you had to do for an inside office anyway, but yeah. you have to do them or the company won't work at all. Whereas if you're in the same office, you might get away without following all the best practices. In a remote environment, it, you have to do it. It's really interesting though, because it sounds like implicit in that idea is that you actually are able to design a company to scale more efficiently because you have to do, to your point, you have to do like, Documenting systems, like you said, that is something that is in, I think in many organizations that are in person or whatever it is, it's sort of like, they know it's important. Aspiration. Kind of a nice, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they end up just reinventing the wheel all the time and they bring in, like they're hiring and onboarding processes or messy, all of those kinds of things. And you're moving fast. And so you, you just put it off and put it off and put it off. With this, it sounds like you don't have a choice. So like goal setting, like having cascading goals and all of that, having really good discipline around your, your, if it's one-on-ones or whatever, your strategic planning process seems to be pretty organized. And then literally everything has to be documented. Those are by doing that hard, by having to do that hard work, it seems like you're setting your organization up to accelerate faster than maybe it otherwise would. Is that fair? Absolutely. We have had like leveling and benchmark compensation for the past three years and a half since we started the company. We have had a documented onboarding that is like almost fully automated since the beginning of the company. Now, it might slow you down if you get too obsessed with this, with all the details. So you have to find a way of doing MVP documentation to an MVP sure. process. So like they are explicit and well documented. And the 80-20, absolutely. Yeah. And I would say in a remote organization, it is much worth it bringing some kind of like HR, people ops, journalists much earlier on precisely mm-hmm. to work on all these things so that the founders or the initial like leads are not the ones dealing with all the cognitive load because it takes a lot yeah. of work. Like just thinking about compensation, compensation in remote environments, it is much more complicated than if you're all in the same city. So having someone that can be thinking and can be shaping their own philosophy as the company grows from the beginning is much easier than bringing them much later on in the game. That's an interesting question, actually. So the idea of that's, that's, I would imagine there are so many landmines there in terms of for a long time, the push toward like, globalization or decentralization or, you know, outsourcing or whatever was an arbitrage play. And and it was less about diversity and it was less about having different uh, cultures bringing to bear and less about like war for talent. Like if I have a, if I can attract globally, I can get a players from all over the world or whatever it is. And it was mostly a cost thing. Have you seen that changing in terms of, especially with like FTEs versus contractors and it's a cultural value of yours is transparency and all that kind of stuff. Like how has that impacted compensation decisions where cost of living can vary widely depending on the country that you're in? Like, how have you navigate, tried to navigate some of those potential thorny issues, like you said? Yeah, compensation, is, it's, it's definitely a tricky one. We, as of today, have a fairly sophisticated approach 
also borrow from GitLab, a lot of inspiration. They've done a lot of great work mm-hmm. where yeah. we do a partial adjustment of compensation to the cost of living of the city of the team member or the tax residency of the team member relative to the cost of living of San Francisco, which we use as our, as our benchmarking market. And yeah. something that I think for anybody who is experiencing in HR, I'm not going to say anything new, but for a lot of people probably, this, I hope this will help. There is no such thing as perfect compensation. It's, it's unattainable. Even if your model is amazing today, the day you add 10 more people, it's going to go to hell. Like someone will be unhappy, right? Yeah. So right. The, the most you can you know, strive for is a sense of fairness, right? And I think that's where transparency really shines. Our compensation, it's completely transparent internally. Everybody mm-hmm. knows how much everybody else makes, which means we're holding each other accountable to being fair, to asking the hard questions up front, to avoid long-term problems but some people are like hey i'm making the same work that this other person is making so why do i get paid differently and i think that what again and there are arguments and there's philosophy and points of view so again there's no right or wrong but the main point here is if you are going to pay everybody the same you do have to choose one reference market if you choose let's say san francisco you're going to be paying everybody else in every other part of the world the San Francisco salary, which now putting just the business hat, you're throwing money away as a company because at the end of the day, it's a market, there's supply and demand. You wouldn't need to pay so much to attract. I'm not saying that is the ethical thing or not. I'm saying that purely from your capacity to attract talent, you're wasting money by paying San Francisco salary to someone, let's say in Lagos, Nigeria, because for Less than that, you would have attracted that person or someone like with the same level of poverty. Uh, so from a fiduciary responsibility towards the company, you are not making the best usage of the capital that you have. Now, yeah. if you say, well, why don't we pay uh, Lagos Nigeria salary to everybody or something in the middle, let's say Barcelona, Berlin salaries to everybody, then... Mm-hmm you're not going to be able to, to attract talent from San Francisco or from your city or from London. So you're yeah. also not in the best position to your fiduciary responsibility of attracting the best talent for the company. So at the end of the day, that that's the reasoning where we are still adjusting the cost of things. However, because we still have a, a significant percentage of the, the salary that is the San Francisco salary, it is a wealth distribution mechanism where from an app, from a, a power acquisition power point of view, someone from Lagos will have much more disposable income working for Micro than someone from San Francisco. Yeah. And as we all contribute to this process of equalization, then eventually, and it might take 10, 15, 20 years for that to happen, I think there will be an adjustment of cost of living and adjustments of salary. Right. And we have to always be adjusting based on market data uh, around this. Yeah. But again, there's no right or wrong, it's just philosophy. And you attract yeah. people who are aligned with this or for whom that is good enough and they're okay yeah. and they're willing to disagree and commit because they have everything else that they love about your company. Yeah. I have a whole bunch of questions around business model in the sense of like, this is similar to if I understand it correctly, it's similar to an income share agreement type of model. And in the U.S. at least, that's been a really interesting topic of conversation, right? Like an adverse selection bias in terms of the type of talent that you bring in and like their propensity to complete it. It sounds like you've you've built some systems that kind of course correct for that automatically. Absolutely. Which is pretty fascinating. Yeah. But also like 
educating the consumer about what, what this even is and convincing them that it is superior to maybe some traditional kind of modalities of going to university or whatever it is, the regulatory aspect of it where they, they're, they're like, what's the, what's the catch here? This has to be predatory in some way. And, and then even just like in your case, governance, when you're not, when you're an internet, when you're an international organization, again, like, do you have to work with on how you structure this? Like it just, it's, Fascinating. So I, I guess I would just love to hear about like, how is, how does the business model operate? And maybe to the degree that it's the same or like, what have you learned about navigating that? And then to the degree that it's different, what informed kind of the decision-making around how this whole works from a business model perspective? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, the devil is in the details. It's very nuanced and it depends on also the incentives. As a yeah. policymaker, you want to make sure that no one is taking advantage of other people. You're protecting the consumer, whoever you're protecting. Yep. And in that case, anything, right, can be used as a weapon or can be used to create positive impact. And yeah. if you don't regulate that, then some people will try positive outcomes. Some people will take advantage. Yeah. As a founder, as a company, we have no doubts about our intentions and we're always holding each other accountable and through transparency, working with our students to hold us accountable to never be taking advantage of how we are leveraging this way of financing education. Mm -hmm. But I said that the devil is in the details because of course, um, I'll explain how ours work and then we can talk about other, other scenarios. So we don't charge a single cent to students for, for them to join. We receive around thirty to 40,000 applicants a month. We select two to 300 per month, so like less like 0.5%. And they don't pay anything until the day that they get a job where they're making at least $1,000 a month. When I, we're going to talk about that in a second. Yeah. And only if they are working in the software engineering field. And they will pay 15% of their monthly salary for as many months as it, as it takes until they get to a, a total of $15,000. Okay. Now, in this model, which in theory, yeah, sounds great, you don't pay anything up front, but what if the conditions were that you will pay 30% of your salary every month, not 15%, and regardless of how much money you make, and regardless of in which industry you're working, well, yeah. I will say that that is quite abusive, right? And I would say that I hope that there are regulators working as their full-time job, making sure that that doesn't happen, not in the U.S., not in any country, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you find ways where like you are doing something that the return on the investment will be disproportionately higher compared to what they're putting in. In our mm -hmm. case, for example, the average salary increase of one of our students, it's a 300%. The average salary increase just from getting the help from a coach in our school to negotiate a salary, it's a 35% higher than if they were not negotiating. So just negotiating salary with the help yeah. of a coach already pays off the ISA. And the $1,000 a month uh, threshold, it's a final point for like, sure, in the US or in most places in Europe, that is a very low salary. That's not gonna, that means you're paying it almost regardless of which job you have. But 85% yeah. of our students come from emerging and developing economies where the local salary for a developer, it is between $250 a month to like $600 a month. Yeah. 
So okay. by putting this threshold there, we are saying you will only pay us back if we deliver in our promise, which is an international job experience or a job that even if it's by a local company, it has yeah. an international scope and international compensation. Otherwise, we failed in our job, right? And you don't have to pay us anything yet. Yeah, interesting. How to what degree the 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 model of the peer to peer thing, because so many of your students are coming from environments like that. I guess I would just be curious, like you need to run a much more capital efficient business, right? Like I know the cash Absolutely. conversion cycles for these things is is very long. Was that a deli- was was that partially a deliberate decision in the sense of like, I have yes, I see this, I see this vision. I want to help folks from developing nations or whatever. I'm assuming a big chunk of them are in developing nations or whatever. That I want to help these people and I want to be able to do it at scale. If I try to set up a school the way that maybe some of your competitor, your, your, your peers are in the United States, certainly, and I'm pretty familiar with some of their models. I can't do it because I can't staff the people relative to what they would be, you know, whether what relative to what I can, I, I can capture from a value perspective on the back end without being predatory. I have to design this fundamentally differently. Was that a deliberate decision or did it just happen? It worked out? No, no, no. It it was completely deliberate. And it it goes back to the story of Burundi, my own story as an entrepreneur. It was like, I, of course, like we are open to every country in the world. If someone from the US comes, please, you're welcome. The experience is going to be amazing. But we are not going to be spending a single dollar developing something that works for the US that doesn't work for the rest of the world. Right. And the easy solution would have been to do this in in the US for sure. That would have made it so much simpler. Right. But because we knew who we wanted to help and where the massive opportunity was, not just for the company, for but for the for the companies attracting talent, for the world, for our vision of the world that we want to see, we said, Yeah, what is the solution that works for them? And A few investors at the beginning told me like, Ariel, you're insane. Like, why are you doing this in every country in the world? We have, as of today, students in 140 countries, full-time students wow. in 140 countries. And, and I said, because if I just started in one country, I'm not going to build the DNA of the company to truly understand what it takes to work with people in other parts of the world. Yeah. And for example, we have had students who have died of malaria while going through the program. We have female students who have to always be asked to make the home and their little brothers and sisters the priority, not their learning, not their job. We have yeah. students that have to walk three, four hours a day to bring gallons of you know gas to keep the electricity generators running. And they need to have three backup routers because their internet service is not stable enough from just one provider. Like all of these quote unquote like nuances are the reality of the lives of the people we work with. So to truly learn how to solve and how do we design a product and the technology to deliver these scalable, predictable outcomes in for that kind of environment and lack of predictability, it took a lot of intentional work and we wouldn't have done it if we hadn't started internationally from day one. Of course, it's more complicated and we're not doing this because it's easy. We're doing it because it's worth it. And yes, it is hard and you don't have originators or uh, like servicers for income share women that do it globally. So yeah. either you end up going with uh, regional partners, which we work in some cases, or you have to build a lot of this in-house. But again, because you have clarity of what is they truly trying to solve and who you're trying to serve, you do what it takes. And anything else that is not that, you try to like put it outside of the organization, delegate it, outsource it, and, and so that you, that you can focus on the two, three things are incredibly hard about the problem you're solving. 
as a leader, how do you steel yourself for like, like, again, like one of your jobs is to maintain the clarity of the vision. I would imagine your model, like your model sounds incredibly compelling to me in terms of like, you're avoiding a lot of the gotchas that a lot of ISA type of programs have and things like that. On the other hand, obviously like you're leaving a lot of money on the table because of this, the 15 K number, right. To the degree that it 20, for the 20% of people that are not in a more developing nation type of situation, I have to imagine that if you haven't already been getting pressure, maybe from some investors at some point that just monetization is the easiest way to tweak your metrics, right? At the end of the day, in terms of like, Hey, I, I, I want to grow. I want to scale. And Dreesen's kind of advice of like, everybody isn't charging enough, all of that kind of thing. Even if it was a variable thing by like the same way that you're handling compensation has to be a little bit variable based on cost of living. That's going to, that's going to come up. How do you as a leader defend the vision in the face of like you, you have financial metrics you, you, you need or your investors are wanting you to hit. How do you maintain the integrity of the vision when you just have this carrot there, whenever you want, whenever you want to pull that lever, you could like, how do you do that? We have amazing margins and that's what drives everything else. But those margins are driven by a model intentionally designed to help the people we want to help. So that when yeah. someone says, hey, but what about this other place? I, like, I wouldn't be able to defend those margins in other places. So yeah. the flywheel here is that this peer-to-peer model, it increases scalability, but also decrease, decreases cost of education. And yeah. then a peer-to-peer environment with people from all around the world not only delivers this technical education, but also this multicultural remote work education, which gives people access to higher paying jobs and compared to local jobs, which means higher jobs, we get to charge more, we get to charge more, it costs us less, means we have higher margins. Higher margins means we have more flexibility to do things, to do things like yeah. being the only school in the world, offering an income share agreement worldwide, right? Yeah. So yeah. those margins allow us to do things in very creative ways when it comes to also be cash flow positive, to also work with the operating capital, which is yeah. the hardest part of the income sharing model. But again, it all goes back to like, if you are going to have a weakness in your working capital, make sure that you have at least strength in the margin side of things because otherwise yeah. you're screwed. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Well, hey man, I want to respect your time. This is, I mean, super inspiring, super fascinating. Um, congratulations on everything that you've managed to do so far. For folks that want to learn more, um, about the organization or maybe how you see the world, where, where should I send them? Probably Twitter. My, my handler is Ariel Camus for first name and last name. Uh, I can always like DM me or tweet and LinkedIn. I don't normally accept people unless I know them, but if you send a message and I guess if you really want to connect with me, Ariel Camus at microresult.org, my email is always open. Great. So yeah, I'm happy to, to help in any way I can. Very cool, man. Well, again, thank you so much for doing this. This was uh, thank you, Sean. Super, super cool. So uh, I wish you the best. So. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. For more ideas on how to disrupt your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. Thanks so much as always for listening. We'll see you next time.